If you would like to support the podcast and get some extra content while you're there, head on over to patreon.com forward slash severe MMA podcast and sign up. From the rewatch to the Q&A, we will have loads of content every week. So sign up, patreon.com forward slash severe MMA podcast. And now, here's the podcast. Graham McDonald is an idiot. Sean Sheehan of severemma.com. He even has the audacity to call himself the quote-unquote pod god. This is Severe MMA. Severe MMA. Severe MMA. Severe MMA. Severe MMA. Severe MMA. The Severe MMA podcast is finally here. Welcome to the Severe MMA podcast. Here's your host, Sean Sheehan. Welcome, welcome, everybody. It's episode 375 of the Severe MMA podcast. My name is Sean Sheehan, joined today by the Graham McDonald of Irish MMA media, Harry Powell, as uh, as Graham McDonald, Graham McDonald as well. He's probably a Welsh MMA media, really, <laughs> Harry. But uh, Graham is away, he's back from uh, holidays. Uh, actually, not next week, but the week after, because next week... Uh, Spencer Kite will be joining me for the state of the UFC. So, as everyone knows, we've been doing that every maybe three or four, three months at this stage. Uh, so, that will be next week's episode. Uh, I'm actually away next weekend and we'll be recording that early and all. But the lads will have another episode out, I believe, early in the week. Um, next week so in eight ten days time or whenever you are like yeah eight or nine days time whatever uh so we will get that out there anyway just uh if you're not following us on twitter uh please do at sean she can be at severe matt bjg underscore harry powell at ian o'neill uh or sorry i o'neill mma i o'neill mms follow at andy sc one two three patchy in as well and all of them and you will get all of our so what's pa- pa- I think is patchy in MMA so he'll give it out to me if I don't give it the, the proper one there so that's what's coming up over next week and on Patreon as always yeah absolutely loads of stuff everyone knows if uh, that's been signed up to Patreon if I'm away there's going to be a lot of stuff there so there is a lot of stuff there as well but anyway this is this episode as an episode as normal uh, and we must tell you that it's brought to you as always by our good friends our great friends even over at Manscaped and if you haven't heard it's smooth sack summer I'm going away to the wedding this weekend and I just got to have to be smooth, smooth sack summer for me so make sure you've escaped from the pubes uh, this summer that's right this is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped the leader and below the belt grooming make sure we have all the balls this summer by giving the pants partners everything they need to stay fresh dive headfirst into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code severe mma severe mma use that code um as i said i'm going to be using my manscaped this weekend i'm going away i'm going to be using my travel bag and you will get that as part of the performance package 4.0 with that and the main thing you get in that is the lawnmower 4.0 as well as the weed whacker for your ear and nose hair trims them you'll get the crop preserver ball deodorant i'll have that in my bag too as well as the toner along with the boxer breeze and as i said that bag to hold them all in so on the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer if you haven't got it, lads, you need to get it. I know, uh, you know, a lot of lads have got it and they they rave about it. If you're listening to this, go to manscaped.com and get it. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Seven thousand RPM uh, motor, advanced skin safe technology, four thousand K LED spotlight for the more precise shave. It's waterproof too, so if you want to use it uh, in the shower, it will devour those strong 
pubes that you have. The liquid formulations are also absolutely brilliant. It'll keep that freshness even at the hottest barbecues. The crop preserver ball deodorant will help you stay cool in the heat with the suiting aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below the waist freshness. And this clear drying formula will keep looking good while smelling good. And those two free gifts as well the boxers from Manscaped and the shed travel bag to put it all into. If you're wearing sandals as well, as a lot of people do in the summertime, pick up the Shears 2.0. It's a luxury nail grooming kit. It includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors with the performance package. Um, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure to, you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code SevereMateManscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping using the code SevereMateManscaped.com. It's Smooth Sack Summer. Boys, get on board or get left behind. All right, Harry. Let's uh, let's get straight into the UFC. And it, do you know what? Uh, you, I know you went to bed and watched it this morning. I was very tempted to go to bed and watch it this morning. But you know what? I'm kind of glad I didn't because it turned out to be a pretty historic card. I think it was my guy, uh, my guy Jay Petri over from Shardog. What did he? Say? And maybe I have this wrong. I look it up here as we're as we're talking. But I think he said 2014 since there was the last card with. Uh, all finishes on it. I know the the Bisping was it Bisping Rockhold or something. One of, one of them uh, was uh, was like eleven finishes out of twelve or something like that. Uh, or maybe that was even the one. I'm not, I'm not sure. But uh, it was sorry, card all finishes. There was only one judge's decision. And I, when I say one judge. I mean one judge, and we will get to that in a while, because people are like, what, what are you talking about? Because no fight went the distance, but yes. Um, w- uh, uh, me watching it live, first of all, <laughs> there, was, there, was two, there was a great thing about it and a terrible thing about it, because there were so many quick finishes, there was lots of just... Brendan Fitzgerald and Michael Bisping talking about nothing, kind of, which they have acknowledged themselves, which I absolutely respected. So the car dragged and dragged and dragged. But you can't blame the UFC for that. And, you know, there was people giving out about ESPN timing and all. You can't blame them from that when there's just first round finish, second round finish, first round finish, first round finish, first round finish. That that's go- going to happen. They can't fucking build a time machine, you know, and, and go through time. So that was fair enough. But I imagine for you waking up this morning, like, as you probably watched this card in like 45 minutes it was probably the easiest morning you've ever had did you did you enjoy it harry it was brilliant shawnee i can't i can't lie to you i uh as i was watching it i was like this is so refreshing why do i not do this more is the I, always, I always do that when i wake up on sunday morning and watch them. i'm an idiot oh, but it was <sighs> look i watched it in just over just under two hours uh, I, you know, as always, I like to take my notes and I like to do those sorts of things, but it was brilliant. I think all the fights, there was a lot, a lot of well-matched fights on this card. There were some absolute stinkers on this card that ended up in a finish. That's fine. But, but overall it was a breeze to watch it, a breeze. I can't imagine staying up and watching six and a half hours of Bisping and Fitzgerald talk about nothing. Cause as you say, you can't blame these guys. This is their job. It's their job to talk. They are scheduled. You know, the fights are scheduled for 15 minutes and that's how the, the broadcast is done. And you can't push the pacing because you have to set a certain amount of time or whatever. But yeah, fuck me watching that live would have been horrendous. Yeah. And there, look, there are certain cards where the pacing is like bad for no reason, but this certainly wasn't one of them. We were, I was just saying before we, we started the podcast, it reminded me a little bit of a Cage Warriors card without that pacing. Because if this happened in a Cage Warriors card, it'd just be fight after fight after fight. But it was like, there was some really good kind of young pros uh, who got good finishes. And it was kind of the, 
we, we talked about it coming in. Look, the match, I, I think yourself and Spencer especially talked about how there were some very, very good matchups here and that, you know, it, it could end like this. We're not being, you know, the Jeopardy is the, gra- the word Graham that he uses all the time uh, in these fights. And I think that's the way it, it kind of played out. It was a very good card. And we got through the whole lot of it here as we go. But we, uh, the, we had to start with how, how good of a card this is because it was a historic one. But I want to actually talk about the main event first and then we got through the rest of the cards. Um... Because it was a, it was an interesting, <laughs> it was an interesting main event. To be honest, if we're if we're being very honest, I call this exactly now. And the preview show, I gave about five different ways this could end. To be fair, now I and I will I will admit that. But when given kind of my pick, and when talking about um, when when given the betting pick as well over in Sherdog, I bet the over two and a half rounds, and I thought it might be either you know go to a decision or a late finish, and and that's kind of how it turned out. And do you know what? The fight actually kind of looked like how I was expecting it to look. And I know you have some um, uh, some thoughts on, on both of their performances. Um, I th- look, I thought, I-, I wouldn't say nervy from Hill early, but I, I think Santos just kind of settled better. Uh, they were both switching stances, which I thought Hill expected to work maybe a little bit better from him. Um, Santos got a clinch for a long time. Uh, time in round one it was a close round I thought Santos's leg kicks were a little bit better <clears throat> and he um, you know he uh, he was just a little bit stronger with his power throughout it in the second round Hill was better I think Santos got tired after the takedown attempt both were landing big but I thought Hill grew into that round in the third there was lots of clinching um, Santos was kind of landing more shots Hill landed some nice knees but it was very close again, and in the fourth, you know, we uh, we know what happened there, where Santos got really, really tired, kind of, and Hill took over and got the got the nice finish. And I, I this is the way I kind of imagined the fight, if I'm being honest. With Hill kind of throwing a lot of shots early, Santos taking them, then kind of getting tired, and Hill's kind of power showing late the one thing I would say as well and you can give us a breakdown of the fight uh, more maybe technically than I just gave it there but from an outside perspective looking at it I was, I was talking to Ian last night just before the, the fight started and you look at Jamal Hill and maybe it's because this came off after a few guys like you know Jeff Neal and, and Usman who look so jacked but he he doesn't does he now and that's not necessarily a bad thing because you look at John Jones you know, when he was fighting at 205, obviously, he never really looked that jagged. In a few fights, he did the OSP fight, which was his worst performance. But you look at Hill and you're kind of thinking, he could probably make middleweight, you know, if he had that. But I don't know, I think that benefits him. And I think he's a guy who's been finishing fights early a lot, but I, I thought he still looked good late in terms of his ability to keep going, which for some fighters, you look at them, and especially when they're fighting three-round fights and maybe they get tired or they have a couple of fights where they maybe gas out a little bit and you're thinking, oh, how's it going to work when they go to five rounds? Now, this was obviously a f- scheduled five-round fight to win to the fourth round. And I, I was kind of thinking, this is this is a good sign for you. It's kind of another question answered. But at the same time... It was a look. It was a tough matchup. It was an interesting matchup, and as we talked about before on the previous show, how you fight Thiago Santos is a very questionable thing these days. Because do you go in and try to knock him out early and think maybe he's shot and he won't land that shot? He won't be able to land the counter. Do you worry and wait for that counter and try to pick him off? Maybe wait till he gets tired and do it late, or what do you do? Like, and to to my mind, he'll 
was confident in himself while not being confident of. I saw. I spoke of as well on the previous show. I think you need to be cocky to beat someone like Thiago Santos. Well, and I don't. I don't necessarily think he was that. And you know what? I don't think that's a bad thing because I think this is a confidence growing sort of win, if not performance. But he got over the hill. It was a test, and he did it. Tell us your breakdown of it, because I know you you weren't as maybe impressed with with Jamal Hill, maybe as some other people. Yeah, I I wasn't. I I, I think. I agree almost with everything that you've just said there that Jamal Hill didn't look like he was as confident as maybe we thought he was going to. I was impressed with how well Santos settled. Santos certainly le- looked less gun shy than he has in in other matchups. And I think that to your point, I'll just loop back around to the physique of Jamal Hill. The thing that I find works really well for his physique because he's very long, he's very gangly and he's using the lack of muscle bound physique on him to be quicker than his opponents. Some of his head movements, nice. He's able to bound in and out of the pocket quite nicely. He uses that really long protruding southpaw stance, cuts off the cage well, enters the pocket well, even though he's not technically there because it's just his feet and whatever. Those things are, are really, really interesting parts of his game. And when he lands the right hand and he lands the left hand, some of them, especially in this fight, they look slick, they look powerful, specifically near the end of the fight. However, the things that I didn't like about Jamal Hill was he started he started well, right? Like he landed well. He wasn't letting Santos get to, you know, much. When Santos landed a leg kick, he would counter him. When Santos was looking to load up, Jamal Hill would either back away or would land his shot or whatever. Santos to his own right, as I said, looked nice, looked confident, did look like he was willing to throw, did throw and and had some success. The things that I didn't like is as the fight sort of moved on, I understand that it's very difficult and very uh, taxing on your cardio to be getting up all the time and defending takedowns and doing all of this stuff. But it looked as though the gas tank of Santos was draining far quicker than the gas tank of Hill. But Hill started to regress into himself a little bit. The stance was less wide. It became more narrow. The head movement seemed to die off a little bit. I feel like if you can recognize that your opponent is getting more tired than you are, and maybe that's one of the experience things that we're that we're looking at here, is that Hill doesn't have the experience to know his level of gas in comparison to his opponent's level of gas. But the shots became sloppier from Hill. And I feel like when he was landing, he was hurting Santos more than Santos was hurting him when he was landing. And I just would have liked to have seen some some of the sharper shots that we saw in the first round and we've seen in other fights. I also think one of the the, the negative points to Hill, and maybe this is something we'll see if he fights a, a Magomed Ankolaev or somebody similar, was some of the, the wrestling exchanges, he was defending really, really nicely, using the overhook to drag Santos up, disrupting the head, splitting his stance really, really well. But then he would make sort of more amateur errors where he'd burst his hips up and give Santos a way to run into the mat by turning the corner. Or he wouldn't notice when Santos was going Santos was going from a double to a single and then he'd run the pipe. So getting into those sort of uh, those circles of being mat returned over and over again and having to expend that energy to get back up 
what you don't want to rely on is one of the strengths we saw in this game, which was his ability to get up. His ability to get up was fantastic. He was posting, he was framing on Santos, he was getting his hips underneath him and he was getting right back up almost immediately. At no point was he controlled in any of those situations. At no point was he dominated in any of those ground exchanges. That was really, really impressive. And that's going to certainly stand to him as he moves up the ranks of this light yeah. heavyweight division. I think the, the best thing you could say about him is he reminded me of Jose Aldo at times with his takedown defense in terms of like, I, I'm not fucking getting taken down and like pops right back up. Now there was long periods of clinching and stuff as well, but, and I agree with the points you made there. The one thing I would say though is Diego Santos is a strong fucking man. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, I know the points you made were well made, but it's, sometimes it's, it's just tough. And the weird thing is that I'm not sure if he'll, acknowledged it or kind of knew it or maybe I'm going full Dominic Cruz here but the the grappling uh, parts of the fight were kind of clearly wearing Thiago Santos out more than Jamal Hill and even if he was say losing a positional uh, part of the fight it was actually benefiting him for being on his long term so yeah it, uh, look Hill is only 12 fights into his career. We, we Sometimes we kind of forget that as well. And he's uh, he is raw, very raw. Like you see in some of his fights and he just comes out and he just throws all over the place. But there is there's a special fighter in there. And he, as you said as well, with you know his physique actually kind of helps him. I always tend to agree. Like John Jones' physique always helped him. And if you look at John Jones with like 10 legs and not, not you know he doesn't look like an Anthony Johnson or someone like that but that's MMA is not MMA is not a strength sport necessarily you know Um, MMA is an athletic sport absolutely without a shadow of a doubt but the best of the best are actually you know sometimes not not like that and if they are they're, they're very very someone like say Demetrius Johnson who had all the skills and had the athleticism as well just a freak of nature you know and you, someone like a GSP was more of an athlete I think than, than anything else but I don't know I, I think he'll uh, he's kind of shown what you can do with a body type like his who is very brave who has natural power and who is on his way you know I, I, I think he'll I think he's really good, and I think he will be champion. I've said it for a long time, and I said it the night Paul Craig beat him even, so I've, I haven't relented, and I believe in him. And there's, he still has a long way to go in terms of where he's going to Like, Hill could be a champion now. That's the mad thing about it. And I think there's probably, like, four or five years of getting better in him, and that's a that's a scary thing. Now, as I always say, maybe he never will get better, you know? Maybe, maybe he never will. Like, that, that can happen as well. But, um... It's astounding that he is at kind of where he is right now while still being pretty green. I think you describe why uh, very, very well there. But look, he moves on. Um, there's kind of a, a Meloways now at the top of that division. Looks like it's going to be a rematch. He's looking for Blahovic and there's Rakic in there and other lads as well. So we'll see how that breaks down. I suppose for Tiago Santos, he'll just be back in the mix as well. Um, let's move on to the co-main event and... I, I haven't spoken to you about it, but I guarantee you, you're impressed with uh, Jeff Neal as I am. That first round, I thought it was a 10-8. You know, Neal landed some big shots. He badly hurt Luke multiple times. I actually thought Luke hurt him with a left hook as well. But Neal landed or uh, reacted very well. He kind of backed off, and Luke wasn't able to kind of come at him. It was it was funny as well. 
And then I, I thought the second round was close, but Luca won it. And then the third round, um, Neil landed one big hard shot. Luca was kind of done for then and landed about 15 uppercuts and finished him off. But I think the one thing here, and the, the for me, the story of this fight and why Neil ended up winning it is because we, you know, in the previous show, we talked as well about Luca and he throws everything and he's so confident and he, he'll take a shot, but he'll keep throwing his own shots and all. I think Neil got his respect very early here. And when he hurt him early in the fight, Luca initially hit back with that big left hook, but then Neil hurt him again. And kind of from that point on, Luca was fighting almost a point fight. You know, this wasn't the normal Vicente Luca. This and they said in the commentary, oh, he doesn't look himself. He's not thrown with his normal, uh, you know, um, cockiness or whatever the the, the word is. Um, but that was all down to Jeff Neal, in my opinion, because he didn't start that way. You know, he started coming out throwing his shots. It was just. Jeff Neal just had the stronger gun than him. He landed harder and he continued to land harder. And Vicente Luque just wasn't able for it. That, that was the way I saw it. But the straight lefts of Jeff Neal right down through the middle were brilliant. I did not think he would have the power advantage over Luque in the way he did it. I didn't think he'd be able to continuously land on Luque and push him back the way he did. And he proved me 100% totally wrong. A phenomenal performance from Jeff Neal. Okay, let it down a little bit in the second round. It turned into kind of a point fight, and I thought it was a close round, but I thought Luca just kind of took it. He had a few leg kicks and a few shots inside. But the second Jeff Neal turned it up in the third again, I think the fight was there for him, and a, a brilliant performance. What did you think uh, of this from Jeff Neal? What do you think of the keys to his victory war? So I don't do this often, but I'm going to do it this time. I called this right down the fucking middle. When uh, we you're, were worse, you're worse than me now. For the- <laughs> when, when we were on the preview show, I said that the keys to victory for Jeff Neal is to give Luke as much space as Luke wants and allow Luke to come in and land as he's coming in. Land as Luke is walking into your power. In the first 20 seconds, in my notes, I wrote, Neal is giving loads of space and he's done three really good things. So far, first he's waiting, he's drawing Luke on, but in a manner that he doesn't want to barrel forward into space because he knows he's going to get countered. Immediately, when Luke was walking forward, Jeff Neal would offer that left hand. He'd just let him know that it's there. Didn't necessarily land it with the power that we saw, but just let him know that it was there. When Luke throws a one shot, Neal came back with three shots. And then as Luke advances into space, that Jeff Neal's leaving for him. He's meeting him with shots. So he did three things. One, he backed all the way out of the pocket as Luke came in to land shots. Jeff Neal, as he was backing away, was hitting Luke with shots. The second was he was punishing Luke for throwing single shots. And the third was then, as he found a little bit of confidence and he realized that Luke was going to continue to come forward and wasn't going to change his game plan, he was then meeting Luke in the pocket with shots. So I, whilst I think Certainly, Jeff Neal was landing the harder shots. I think some of that was Luke's fault because he was literally walking onto the power, which is obviously going to make a shot more impactful than if you're walking away from a shot and you can roll with the shot. However, all of that came from Jeff Neal's footwork. The whole thing, everything was about Jeff Neal's footwork in that first round. And I thought it was an absolute masterclass. He was finding a way to exit the pocket. He was finding a way to get himself off the cage. He was setting up the left hand with the variety of footwork by winning the outside battle with stepping into the pocket and offering things and coming back out and just 
causing Luke absolute fits with all of that footwork and that left-hand laser. Then as the confidence started to build for Jeff Neal, he would then advance forward. He'd push Luke back. And that's just not something we see that often. I don't know why in that first round, Luke didn't attempt to do a bit of grappling just to diversify things. But then we saw Neal doing the grappling, shooting on a single leg, lifting that foot high up over his shoulder and sweeping underneath and then dominating those positions. I was just, I was ultra impressed with Jeff Neal in round one. And in round three, I completely agree with you that what you don't want to do is allow Luke to fight in a way that he wants to. That more in the pocket exchange, I'll throw one, you throw one, I'll throw one, you throw two, I'll throw three, you throw one. That's a situation you don't really want to be in with Luke. Now, maybe that's Jeff Neal not respecting the power of Luke, having felt a little bit of it. Maybe that's him wanting to prove a statement that he can fight in the same way that Luke wants to. But I felt like Vicente got a little bit of confidence in there and started firing back a little bit. As you say, caught Jeff Neal a few times, maybe forced him to go back to his original game plan but when he went back to that original game plan in round three he was brilliant yeah absolutely brilliant stuff uh, i would agree uh, as well the fact that luke didn't kind of switch it up i know as you kind of said there neil switching it up maybe stopped him from switching it up necessarily a little bit but i think i think that was probably his gravest error but i actually wouldn't criticize luke too much i i, I would just give it all to Neil here it was a brilliant performance and I, I think he took it out of him from, from second one and you know I said it a couple of weeks ago once that avalanche starts it's very hard to turn it around so great performance from uh, from Jeff Neil uh, let's run through the rest of the card here pretty pretty quickly to be honest um, the two tough fights I'm going to read a tweet here from Sean Shamrock my guy about uh, Juliana Miller Brogan Walker fight <clears throat> and I think it perfectly describes this fight so his tweet said this fight was like when a person who never trained before wanders in off the street talking shit and the coach, le- coach lets the person who's been in the gym for eight months have a go at them that that that's exactly what that fight was it was someone who was green as grass fighting someone else who was green as grass, but a little less green, even though the person who won it only four fights and the other person had 10 fights. Uh, yeah, not great. And then the heavyweight one, um, <clears throat> Mohamed Usman in that first round, like that lad cannot throw a punch. <laughs> like he was falling over himself. Like I'm obviously no technical punching expert or anything like this. But you know, you know, you hear lads talking about don't be crossing your feet, don't be falling over yourself, you know, don't let your shoulder get in front of you. He was falling all over himself. It was look, it was literally just pure brute strength and power that got him this knockout. And like it was a nice punch, I suppose. It was a nice, nice left hook. But uh, I, I think Pauga, he he looked okay to me. He's only six fights into his career. He looked very good and athletic. Uh, he seemed to be more technical. The one thing that he kept kicking that planted leg, and I was like, "You're going to break your leg if you keep doing that." And I was like a bit uncomfortable watching. I was like, "Stop doing that!" And he kind of did, I think, to, to be fair, maybe uh, towards the end of the first round. But maybe he should have kept doing it. Not great. And anything positive to say from those two tough fights, Harry? Before we move on. Jesus. Um, <laughs> That's an all in, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my first, God. One of the only notes I wrote for, for Usman and Pauga was clearly this Usman hasn't followed his brother to Trevor Whitman's gym, has he? No. Just rough enough. Um, I thought 
the the McKenna, uh, not McKenna Granger. The um, what are the two ladies' names? Walker Miller. and Miller. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the tweet was perfect. Miller's ground control was fine, but she took Walker down four times with the same takedown four times. Just horrendous. Really bad stuff. Yeah, I, I don't think Miller necessarily mightn't be a good fighter at some stage. Just right now, <laughs> she's 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 not it. But yeah, it was. It was what you would expect, I suppose, and what everyone talks about tough. It was really low quality. Um, anyway, we, we got, look, we got two finishes there anyway, so it wasn't too bad. Uh, then we had, you know, the, the Sergei Spivak, Augusta Sigai fight, which we kind of had a big argument about on the previous show. I'm not, not going to say it, but Sean, he was right. <laughs> it was a horrendous fight. Oh, my God. It was. Oh, I disagree with that. What? It wasn't horrendous? Nah. Oh horrendous. my god! They, they spent the whole the first round falling over each other. Spivak's wrestling kind of did take over, but this was this was awful. I thought, no, oh my god, that first the first round was literally two takedowns by by a lads falling over. It was awful. How was it not horrendous? Like God Almighty! I definitely don't agree with that. We won't go into too much of a technical breakdown because we haven't got the time. But like the first takedown was actually not as bad as you think. Spivak went for a hip and an overhook grip. And then hit an inside trip and turned your man the, the same way. The, the first take down was fine. Um, the the Uchimata wasn't great, don't get me wrong, but but he still hit it and he still got it. Um, I thought that Spivek's groundwork was good. I didn't appreciate how how little he was able to control Sakai on the ground. But, you know, you have to give some credit to Sakai for not wanting to give up and wanting to get back up and and do everything, you know, that he was able to do to to get the fight back to the feet. I just, I didn't think that, that Sakai had any answer for the clinch and wasn't able to disengage. And Spivak just sort of ran him over in the wrestling exchanges. And then in the end, you know, the stoppage was fine. I got no problem with the stoppage. Yeah, I thought the stoppage was good as well. It was one of those ones where you like, I think my main point maybe on the previous show and what I was thinking is like, when Spivak gets to Curtis Blades, he, that's it. Like, <laughs> there's no, he's not getting Bass Blades. Never mind Ganya, never mind Nganu, never mind Steve, never mind John Jones. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, look, he's 15 and 3 and it was another win, but yeah, I, I didn't think it was great. Anyway, um, Terrence McKinney didn't. I was impressed with Terrence McKinney. You know, he went a little bit longer, looked calmer. Um, he landed his power, got hit once very hard himself by uh, by Eric Gonzalez. Then he actually went for the takedown as well, which was smart, and ended up getting the rear naked choke. Um, called out Paddy Pimblet afterwards. That's not happening. <laughs> I know, I know, anything, anyone, if it is. Oh my God. Terrence McKinney. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to get make people mad or anything, but Turns McKinney would fucking destroy Paddy Bimblet, I think. Um What do you think of McKinney as as a prospect? Because it's we we'll run through the rest of the fights, but I think McKinney is someone we have to talk about. We should always stop and talk about. He fought Drew Dobert last time. Drew Dober is a way better fighter maybe than people acknowledge, I think. Um and McKinney nearly knocked him out and then ended up you know, getting finished himself. But this was a good performance and a smarter performance, even though it was still the quick finish for McKinney. Definitely. I mean, uh, 15 seconds into the first round, I wrote my first note, which is we're not going to see 10 minutes from Terence McKinney here. Like he's not interested. Absolutely not interested whatsoever. He uses his range really well. Everything is thrown with power. Now that might come to, to a detriment to him a little bit later as his gas tank runs out. And we sort of saw that against Drew Dober. I'd like to see him 
take the Trevor Whitman advice of Justin Gaethje in the Tony Ferguson fight, which was just take 25% off. You're going to get him out of there. Don't worry about it. Just take a little bit off. Just a, just a touch off those shots. But when he throws and he throws those long, straight shots, he's he just looks fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. The, the, the overreaching of the right hand, which got him caught with the left hook from Gonzalez, which is the shot you were talking about. The correction he then made to square his hips up and the speed with which he double-legged Gonzalez to the mat was unbelievable. I know Kiesa's talked all the time, lauding about how good his grappling is, but if that's the speed of a double leg when he's just got clipped with a big left hand, I'm really excited when somebody forces him to grapple or when he chooses to grapple in fights because that was absolutely astounding. The finish itself was was good. You know, uh, Gonzalez did his best to get up and I thought McKinney did a great job of using the cage to anchor himself to that back and and then, you know, used the back and used the the body triangle. Uh, sorry, used the, the, the short hook, long hook. I won't go into too much detail as to what that is, but essentially it, it anchors yourself to the hips of your opponent in a different way to the body triangle. The readjustment was really nice when Gonzalez tried to chuck him off one side. McKinney switched to the other side, gets the rear naked choke. Lovely, lovely performance. Really, yeah. really good stuff. Beautiful stuff. Um, Sam Alvin before that got murdered in front of six of his kids. And I fucking hate that. Like Sam Alvey, look, he's what lost uh, nine of his last ten fights. One was a draw in the middle of that. Um I I just really don't like having kids there watching their father getting absolutely annihilated, which was going to happen here uh, in this fight. But look, credit to Mikhail Olukjechuk for the the very good performance there. But this is probably the end of Sam Alvey. Brian Battle, what what a knockout from him! You know he's been impressive so far. And shout out to Spencer for calling this, watching go a pure trooper watching those uh, seasons are tough. And he was telling us about Brian Battle. He looks good. He called out Ian Gary as well, an interesting one. Um, he landed that right hand, knocked the head to the left, and then landed the big right leg head kick. Beautiful stuff altogether. Very, very well set up. And you could see it was almost, you know, the, the, the kick was coming by the time the punch landed almost. Beautiful stuff altogether. So definitely someone to uh, to watch going forward. And Corey McKenna got a Van Fluchuk uh, over Miranda Granger. She almost got the arm triangle at the end of the round one. Immediately got the fight to the ground. And the... Uh, got the win. The other... Lady Miranda Granger, not very good at all. And anything I've known in those couple of fights there, and then we'll talk more about the, the judges being pulled because I absolutely love that. Was there anything you, you uh, found interesting in any of those fights? Really impressed with Brian Battle. I think the other thing that we didn't give Battle credit for, and we should, is he noticed that when Sato throws a jab, the left hand drops. So you see just before he throws his right hand to the kick, Sato throws a left uh, throws a throws a jab off his right hand. Battle immediately comes back with the right hand, causing Sato to think about that, and then it throws the high kick. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. McKenna showing that if she fights to her own game plan, she's excellent. She needs to do more of that. That's it. Hundred percent. Yeah, she's very small for that division as well, and it's it's tough. You know, if there was an Adam Wade division, everything she'd probably be fighting there. Uh, hopefully, in the future, that uh, that happens. Um, and then we had the, the Bueno Silva versus Stephanie Yeager fight, which was so interesting because I'm pretty sure you were on the call, weren't you, a couple of weeks ago with the, the California State Athletic Commission and Ian was on it. There was a few other people on it as well. And they talked about polling judges on it. 
And I spoke to I, I, Do you know what I don't know if it was Before that or after that. I assume it was after that But I had a long chat With a couple of judges About you know Polling the judges And what it meant And how often it happens And all of that And I, I don't think I've ever I, I think it happened once Before in the UFC I read an article With Herb Dean But I don't remember In a long long time And I don't think Maybe it was as Noted when it happened Back then uh, So what happened here If you weren't, weren't Watching the fights Um Stephanie Edgar was caught in an armbar position. It was against the cage. Very hard to see it. The referee didn't see it, but Buena Silva stopped fighting because she basically said she felt a tap. Stephanie Edgar was kind of like, oh, I I didn't tap. Uh, What's going on here? Do you know she was kind of not admitting it? There was no camera angle because it was right against like the, right in front of Ron McCarthy, one of the judges. Uh, So no, like, you couldn't see it on camera the referee couldn't see it so and they went to replay and the replay couldn't see it so what the ref did then and it was brilliant officiating he polled the judges so this is a thing that uh, obviously on the training last month or two months ago they talked about it uh, California Athletic Commission and I'm pretty sure everyone involved here was on that training so if people want to say judges and refs are not held to account they don't get trained they don't improve they don't learn you're wrong and this is exactly fucking case in point here because that training paid off uh, Chris Tyone, the referee, went around to the judges and go, did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? When he went to Ron McCarthy, as you can see in the replay, quite clearly was sitting right behind it, was looking directly at it, and he saw the tap. And now I believe there was another couple of people at that side of the cage as well who looked at it and saw it and could see the tap. We can't see it in camera, but I'm very, very happy to take the word of someone like Ron McCarthy, who's a very, I believe, he does a bit of grappling and stuff as well, I believe. Um, a very, very good judge, son of big John McCarthy, you know, so he's been around again for a long time, but that doesn't matter who Sonny is, but he's a very good judge in himself. He called it, he said, yeah, I saw the tap, she 100% tapped, and the referee goes, right, that's perfect, I've polled the judges, they got the right decision in the end. Absolutely phenomenal officiating, brilliant officiating, using their training, do using something that is really effective, that's not really used that often to get the right um, outcome of the fight. Absolutely brilliant stuff. People give out about judges and referees enough. Chris Tyone, I think, is one of the most improved referees around. I think he's done great, especially uh, because he's been one of the main refs during the whole pandemic. Well, I assume he's in Vegas and he's an awesome on all of those Apex shows. And I think he's actually done a great job. I think before, I, I, I kind of my opinion on him was he wasn't a great ref, but I think he's turned into a very, very good ref. And this was very interesting to see. And for a, a judging nerd like me, it was very, uh, very enjoyable. What did, what did you think of it, Harry? Loved it. At the time, it looked like the armbar was real tight. You know, uh, Bueno Silva had done all of the right things to secure the armbar. And then obviously, Bueno Silva feels the tap, looks at the ref, nothing happens. And then she lets go and, you know, her hands are up in the sky. She's telling the ref, like, she tapped. She definitely tapped. And whilst I didn't see much protesting from Egger, there obviously was a little bit, right? But, but when the camera panned to Egger, Egger certainly wasn't, you know, you know what it's like when when you when you see a tap or whatever, and and they they they're saying it's like that. They're like, oh, no fucking way! Like it wasn't a tap. The hands are in the air. They're animated. Whatever. Egger was pretty sullen and was pretty like down low. I think I think she knew that she'd tapped and and uh, was sort of leaving it up to maybe whether the judges would would you know give it a no contest or what. Like that is a question. If they couldn't decide whether it was a tap or not, what happens? Uh. Uh, well, I think two things can happen. It probably would have been uh, a no contest, or else the referee would have said, like, well, 
she was breaking the arm anyway. I stopped it because of like she was about to break the arm. Like that's happened before. Like her Dean and Frank Mir and that. But I don't think it was necessarily necessarily that. Uh, yeah, I think it probably would have been a no contest. I suppose. Um, although I did like did the ref the ref didn't necessarily wave it off, did he? He kind of went to the the camera before he gave any conclusion, which was the right thing to do, I suppose. When he didn't see it, you can't call it if you don't see it. So, yeah, it, pro- it probably would have been a no contest, but thankfully we we did, you know we didn't have to get there, and uh, you know that the fight ended the way it did. But um, yeah, great stuff from uh, Chris Tyone and uh, we must not forget as well, you know, a good win for uh, for Buena Silva as well, and uh, and nice uh, uh, Amber. Right, let's talk uh, about uh, a bit of PFL. Obviously, we had a PFL last Friday. We're going to have a PFL next week. We also we talk. There's loads of stuff to talk about. To be honest, we have Bellator, we have Cage Wars, and everything like that as well. Um, Harry, first of all, let's talk. Uh, just before we started recording, you were kind of saying to me you thought this uh, this fight between Anthony Showtime Pettis and Stevie Ray was pretty close, and honestly. I, I would tend to uh, I would I would tend to agree with you. It was a uh, it was it was an interesting fight because Anthony Pettis was on the MMA or during the week. Uh, was it? It was the MMA, yeah. And he was kind of saying, "Oh, I tapped out on purpose. I knew I'd be fighting again in a few weeks. I saved myself." And uh, I just kind of felt like one that was bullshit. And you must feel good for Stevie because imagine if you're Stevie Ray listening to that. You must feel good for Stevie Ray to get the win over a guy who said the win five weeks ago when he looked like he tapped out because he was badly injured wasn't a real win. So fair play to Stevie Ray. Do you know, I think he deserved the win, but as we were talking about before, maybe if you want to go through it and think, say what you think, I thought there were, you know, there were three very close rounds. There was submission attempts that you don't know how close they were. There were big strikes. Actually, there was one big strike landed by Pettis. I think it was in the second uh, or he looked like he hurt Stevie Ray, but Stevie Ray immediately went for a takedown, immediately pushed him against the cage, and immediately made Pettis defend. And that's a great situation, I think, to show that the, the there isn't massive proof that that massive shot actually hurt him. Even though it looked like a big, hurtful, massive shot, that's a great tactic. You know, uh, takedowns don't score you stuff. Or pushing lad against the fence doesn't score you stuff. But it also stops another lad from scoring in certain situations like that. But all in all, very close round. Uh, Pettis, you know, obviously got the better of it on the feet, but not majorly. And Ray got the better of it on the ground in terms of position, in terms of threatening with chokes, but not majorly either, I would say. How did you see it uh, overall, Harry? I mean, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a judging expert and I always defer to yourself when, when we talk about judging. I'm not either, don't worry. <laughs> uh, sure, look. But I thought, I thought you're right. I thought it was a close fight. The first round, I think Pettis did a bit better on the feet, landed some more impactful strikes, landed a few head kicks, had Stevie Ray guessing a little bit, has a really nice, he throws a, a right kick first, and then as the right kick comes back, he throws a right hand, and that was catching Stevie Ray really well. Ray managed to get it to the ground. His grappling was really good. He passed guard twice. He sunk in a, a north-south choke that Pettis did really well to survive, was pulling up on the armpit of Ray to give himself a bit of a bit of a room to breathe, managed to maneuver himself so the choke wasn't wasn't going to finish him but you know again it was a submission attempt it was the closest that it came to, to to ending the fight however Pettis certainly landed the more impactful strikes on the feet the second round then you know you, you've already touched on it Pettis landed a good shot uh, Ray managed to get the fight to the ground took his back pretty quickly and landed 
nothing from the back and didn't really threaten too hard with chokes from the back. Pettis landed a couple of pot shots from the back. However, the, certainly the position was dominant for a significant portion of the round. The third round then, most of it was on the feet and both of them were pretty equal. I, I felt like Pettis landed slightly better on the feet, but I could see uh, you know, an easy case as to why Ray was given the third round as well. So it was a tough fight to score, good fight, close fight. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree with all you said. I tend to think Ray was the deserved winner, though, to be fair. So I, I, think the, I think the judges got it right. And, you know, this uh, PFL card was on in uh, in Madison Square Garden. And I, I saw, if you notice, Brian Minor was refing. Um, and usually when there's a good ref like Brian Minor there, a lot of the other, and I actually haven't even looked into the judges or ref, but I just saw Brian Minor there and I was like, well... This is not like their usual crew, you know, so it's, if they have him, you know, maybe he, he's also a great judge as well. So it was great to see him there. And uh, from what I saw on the night, I, I saw the top five fights, I didn't see the rest of it, but the, you know, all the decisions to me look good anyway. Anyway, um, having said that, what a, what a window for Stevie Ray, fair play to him. He's a guy who's had a tough time, you know, yeah. you're talking about he, he could have been retired not too long ago and all of that. He said 35 fights. And like to, to go through, you know, what he's uh, beaten Pettis twice, you know, after obviously losing to uh, to Martinez at the start of the year in that close fight, you know, which, uh, which could have gone either way. And, you know, after getting out of the UFC and fighting great, you know, very good guys, like, you know, I fought the likes of Paul Felder uh, in the UFC seeing and you know a few more as well and having very tough fights back in the day in cage wires and bama and other places as well it's great to see him rise and absolutely brilliant to see where he's gone to at this stage of his career the same could be said i think for the other lads all three of the other lads who won uh, in the playoffs here are Mary Ekmanov, Olivier Aubameyang, and Rob Wilkinson. Like the four lads here, all ex-UFC lads who were, you know, I don't think any of them left of their own accord. Maybe I'm wrong there, uh, but it, it felt like they all kind of were... Pettis is probably the only one who did kind of leave of his own accord. I'm sure that they would have been happy to, to keep him. And they all maybe have a point to prove and they all see that million quid as a massive thing for them and they've all fought really well to get there. Just to run through it quickly and then you can give me your, your thoughts on like I think Josh Silvera is a brilliant fighter. I think he's a very good grappler and a very good wrestler, but Akhmadov is as well. And when you have very good takedown defense like Akhmadov, you can't get the fight to the ground. I know they were talking in the commentary about his cardio being an issue, but I don't think your cardio is an issue when you can kind of easily stop most of the takedowns and you're winning on the feet and you don't really have much coming back from Silvera. Now, I think Silvera improved an awful lot. He's still a young enough pro 9-1. You know, we know that 9-1 record. All of the greats have had a 9-1 record at one stage. I think he'll be back, but... Uh, Ahmedov, the deserved winner here, and has been a standout. Rob Wilkinson, a deserved winner and a standout as well. I told everyone who listened last week that that fight would be a banger, and it was for, uh, for what, 97 seconds. Dylan Monte landed some good shots, and I wouldn't say he'd Rob Wilkinson hurt. Maybe. He probably didn't even hurt, but he didn't have him in trouble, maybe. Good, a very good fight there, but Wilkinson and Ahmedov is the deserved uh, 205 pound championship fight there and I would say the same for Stevie Ray versus Aubameyang Mercier Alex Martinez can count himself a little maybe unlucky obviously because he beat Stevie Ray and he's performed well throughout as well I know he's got a couple of, uh, of maybe good decisions there but Aubameyang Mercier definitely won this fought very differently I thought more power, more straights down the middle. Find out, uh, obviously, out of the, the south position. If I'm remembering correctly, Harry, you'll probably correct me if, uh, uh, if, if I'm uh, if I'm wrong. There, very good performance. A better performance from him than I, honestly, than I thought he had in a fight like Alexander Martinez. I think he completely took him out of his game. Um, 
while fighting him in his game, if that makes sense. He, Martinez just didn't know how to react and Aubameyang Mercy had dominated. So, four very good performances and a very good performance uh, as well, uh, I thought, by uh, by Martin Hamlet, who won the, the split decision over Corey uh, Hendricks. I kept saying last week that uh, he beat Hendricks before and it turns out Hendricks actually beat... I watched like 13 minutes of the fight and turned it off and Hendricks fucking... I think, did he submit him or knock him out? Uh, I'll get it wrong again, but like in the 14 minutes, I, I like fucked that one up. But uh, all in all, I think... It, this is good for the PFL because the lads who have fought the best, the lads have, who have shown the best are all in the finals there. And okay, you don't have the name in Pettis, but at the same time, I think that's that's good. From overall, Harry, I know you watched this fight, these fights. I'm looking forward to the finals. Are you? I think all the finals are great, to be honest. I think there's some really interesting, really, really interesting questions in, in Stevie Ray and Olivier Aubin-Mercier. Uh, and then equally, there's some really interesting questions with Akhmedov and Wilkinson. I thought Wilkinson looked great. You know, uh, his opponent came in in the VT saying, I'm going to stand in the middle, I'm going to bang with him, I'm going to put him away, or et cetera, et cetera. And Wilkinson maybe saw that and was like, okay, and stood there, stood with him. And I do think he did hurt him. I do think his opponent did hurt him. He caught him with a big right hand, but Wilkinson used his experience, took a step back, drew him onto the hard right hand. Then it was an uppercut. Then it was a forearm smash. Then it was a left hook. And then the knee came. And then that was the end of the fight, right? Great, great performance for Rob Wilkinson, who looks absolutely ginormous at light heavyweight. That man is huge. If you go back and watch him against Israel Adesanya, that's a different human. He's just an absolute monster of a man. I was very impressed with Olivier Aubameyang, as you've said. Southport, yes, but he did what he had to do, right? He took the kick game away from Martinez because he was either all the way in or when he was all the way out, he was looking to catch kicks. He was looking to parry kicks. He was looking to punish him when they were naked kicks. Really good performance. And obviously when he, he sort of grew into the fight, right? The first round, it was a close round. Second round, took his back, did all of the, you know, attempted the chokes, did whatever. Third round then just sort of same again. He was like, here's my in. I'm going down. Here we go. I think it's going to be an interesting grappling exchange between Obama Mercier and, and Stevie Ray. I'd be interested to see who gets the better of that. And with Akhmedov, to me, this was just a nine and one fighter fighting against a guy who's been fighting forever. That's what it yeah. looked like. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. And I do think uh, he will be back as well. Next week's PFL and PFL 8, they're coming over and they're going to be in Cardiff, Wales, in your uh, beautiful home country. Um, we will talk first of all about the uh, the four playoff fights there, and then we'll talk about some of uh, the. Uh, there's a bit of Irish interest, obviously. So there were some other fights as well last week. I don't know what's going on with some of these fights. They're just like random fights between random people on some of these cards as well. So I don't know what's going on. But the four fights, uh, I'll have uh, my preview over in Sherdog as well for a, a longer breakdown. But we break them down uh, kind of quickly here. You know, Rory McDonald versus Magomed Umalatov is a very interesting fight. Umalatov hits really hard. You might see the name Magomed Umalatov and think this guy is a wrestler. Far from it. Uh, he, although he can wrestle, but he's 12 wins. And uh, I'm just looking up here, but if I'm not mistaken, uh, 10 of them, yes, are by knockout. He's one submission in there as well. This guy can fucking hit. And I, I actually think, having watched him and seen, you know, see a guy who's 12 and all, I think a prime Rory McDonald would be actually be a relatively bad matchup for Umalatov because Umalatov is a guy who waits and waits and waits and bangs in with a straight shot right down the middle and the kind of the, the ferocious jabbing double leg artist that Rory McDonald once was would actually be a pretty bad matchup for that. I don't think Rory McDonald is that anymore. He tries to be that, but he's just I know he's still young and by age, but he's long in the two in terms of the amount of 
time he has spent in the cage, the amount of damage and wear and tear he has taken, um, and also just maybe that, like, maybe he's lost a step a little bit. It's like watching Virgil van Dijk run against Mitrovic. Like, he just doesn't look as fast as he once was, and I think that's the case here in that one. Before we move on to the other fights, I know that's kind of the, the big one. That's kind of the main event here. Um, how... Most of all, how do you see Rory? Do, do you see it the same way as me, or am I overreacting maybe a little bit? I think you're absolutely right. The we've talked about this before, and, and let's not turn this into a speaker's corner, obviously. But like, there's a there is a part of a fighter that that dies in cages when there's an absolute war, 100%. and he had more than one, right? And the Rory McDonald that we look at is not the same Rory McDonald that we saw in the UFC. He's not the same guy that was going to be Canada's next champion. It wasn't, it's, he's not that guy. He's just not that guy. We, he's flirted with retirement. He's talked openly about not liking the violence of MMA anymore. Then he backtracked on that. This is a man that is not the same 19 year old stone blooded killer that we saw in there in those amazing fights. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I still think there is a way for him to win this fight, to be honest, it, but it has to be, I think it can only be 15 minutes of very safe jabbing and Umalatov just can't land. I think that, I know, I actually think there's a chance of that, to be honest. I, I wouldn't say it's 50 50 or even maybe 60 40, but I actually think there is a relatively good uh, chance of that happening. Um, as I said, I think Roy McDonald, maybe, I don't know the exact time, maybe five years ago, six, seven years ago. I, I think he'd beat someone like Umalatov, even though I respect and think Umalatov, I'm picking Umalatov to win here, but I think he's very, very good. But yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting. In the same division then, uh, at 170, we have uh, Carlos Leal uh, against uh, Sadabu C. Um, if anyone watched this, the C versus Roy McDonald fight, it's probably a bad fight to watch him on, although he did win, and I, I thought he deserved to win, but he was fighting more of kind of uh, a close not get hit too much fighting against Rory McDonald when it was in the clinch. Uh, but he, what he is is a very long, hard-hitting outside fighter who likes to land big stuff. You know, he, he really, really does. And they all land the other side in as well. You know, he's a guy who has 20 fights now in his career at the age of 28, so very, uh, very experienced as well. Has, has knockout power. You know, he has seven knockouts, but... Hasn't had one, you know, he, he said, well, he had got one in what, what the start of this year, I suppose, but he doesn't have loads recently and against, you know, the, the top competition that was against Carlos Kuyp, you know, he went in there against uh, Ray Cooper and, and did well there as well. Um, it'll, look, it'll be, you'd fancy the winner of the other one probably to win it, even though he did be Rory McDonald, so that's a little bit unfair, like I was talking about Rory McDonald there, but I, I think the, the heavyweights is a very, very, a very very interesting as well. Um, Bruno Capelosa being out is a big, big blow to them, but the fact that the guy who just beat him is coming in softens it a little bit. Obviously, Mattia Scheffel is fighting Dennis Golsov. Uh, Scheffel, in his first fight I saw him in, he got knocked down twice, and it looked like, I don't know, it looked like he was, you know, a fucking blanket would knock him over or something. And then he goes in there, and he absolutely destroys Bruno Capelosa over three rounds. Golsov is a very good wrestler, a very good all-around fighter. You'd have to fancy him there. And then Ante Deja against Hinefehea, very interesting. Ante Deja, you see the Croatia flag alongside him here if you're looking up on Sherdog or Topology or wherever you have it 
and you think, oh, he's probably, you know, he fights out of croak up steam as well, I believe. You'd probably think, ah, oh, this guy's a kickboxer. Far from it. <laughs> you know, he takes you to the ground, pushes you against the cage. Very good on the ground. Very good on top. But he can strike as well. I think his striking has improved a lot. Finan Fahea is a big, massive lump of a man who will throw flying knees really athletic but if he can land that big shot and he can land it early he's probably getting taken down and probably getting beaten here what's your uh, anything stand out in, in those fights I know I kind of broke them down quickly there what are you kind of looking forward to in these uh, big uh, three I suppose outside the Royal McDonald fight I think Ante Deja versus Hanan Ferreira is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most because you've got not only is it the jeopardy of a semi-final, right? But you've got a guy that's an absolutely gargantuan hitter. Absolutely gargantuan hitter. And can do a little bit on the ground. And then you've got Ante Dejo, who's six foot five, with almost an 80-inch reach, who will happily push you against the fence, who can put you down, as we saw against Scheffel. Has already got wins over Goltsov and Scheffel. Although, you know, losing to Capelosa, these things happen in MMA. And I think that's a great fight. I'm really, really looking forward to that one. Indeed, 100%. Then we have the uh, the Irish guys on the card as well, and uh, they'd be headlining. Uh, oddly, I don't know how this is working like this, but I don't know. PFL are doing a lot of things at the moment, and I'm honestly, I'm not sure about it yet, but anyway. Uh, so we've Nathan Kelly against um, Ben Ellis, and then we've Will Flory against Anthony Salamone. Uh, Nate Kelly has... Turned around, I would say his uh, you know his career massively over the last one. He lost his first two fights, uh, but has won now what five in a row. Um, I was at his Bellator fight against Scott Pedersen. I was I was impressed there. He obviously won out in that uh, shit show, I would call it in, in Centurion. So I don't know how much you can uh, you can read into that. Although the guy he fought was eight and one, so you know he he uh, he deserves some praise for that, and he knocked out uh, Shimrock uh, as well before that. So you know I, I thought. I, I think Nathan Kelly is, is a fighter who I, I'm still unsure about, but I have interest in, you know? If you look at him and you see the improvement he's made over the last while, like how far can he go? People often talk about the ceiling of a fighter. This fight, I think, will tell you a lot about where he is because if he can beat someone like Ben Ellis, who is a very, very good wrestler and a good all-around fighter, you know, he's only lost uh, uh, to date in his career was against Manny Akpan, who came out and pulled guard against him and then hit him with a, like a wheel kick. <laughs> and it was just like kind of call off guard, beat Nick Bagley. And his next fight, he'd beaten Kingsley Crawford before that. We all know how good Kingsley Crawford is. You know, he's beaten Scott Pedersen, Emil Pedak, and others as a uh, as an amateur as well, which wasn't that long ago, only in 2018, 2019. It's a very, very interesting fight. Honestly, I'm not sure which way it'll go. What do, what do you think of it? Well, like you said, we're going to find out where Nathan Kelly really is. Obviously, he's been on a on a far better streak than the than the first two first two fights of his pro career. But you know, Ben Ellis was called the Welsh Habib, right, by his camp, yes, and, and that's what the guys at Cage Warriors are calling him. And he fights a little bit like that, right? Not too not too happy to stay on the feet, and when he gets to the ground, is very very dominant. And we saw Nate Kelly have a great performance against Scott Pedersen in the same realm. So it'll be interesting to see who can keep it on the feet. I mean, obviously, if Nathan Kelly is able to keep it on the feet, that's where he's going to be more comfortable. We're going to find out. Ben Ellis has been around. He's had a good amateur career, just like Nathan Kelly has. I think this is a really, really well-matched fight for two guys in a similar position in their career. Really, really like this fight. Interesting as well, the fact that fights like this are happening on PFL now. Like, this is a, a kind of a Cage Warriors-esque fight, uh, or maybe a Bellator fight. Um, and obviously, we... Go on. 
do you think some of this is because of sort of the the current fervor around Irish MMA? It feels like Irish MMA has the has the excitement back to it. And maybe that's because I'm working with you guys and, and we're covering it as well as we are. But it feels as though other organizations are latching on to the, the knowledge that Irish MMA is starting to build and there's excitement back in Irish MMA. And they're taking guys that would be on a cage warriors or would be on a Bellator Europe series or whatever and putting them on PFL as a way to generate eyes to the cards that maybe wouldn't have been there in the first place. A hundred percent. Like Irish guys have a built-in fan base just because they're Irish. Like, like if you look at say, say like Paul Hughes, he's kind of a built-in fan base because people looked at him. He's good and he's Irish. Whereas you look at say like someone like a Jordan Vucinic who's, you know, beat him. who's just as good uh, I don't think he has that same built-in fan mess and you don't need to be a great character or anything like that even to get it. I, I think that that definitely does exist. And I also think because, you know, because of McGregor, let's be honest here, there's a built-in kind of media scene here in Ireland. There's a built-in MMA scene with, you know, SPG and all the other gyms that have popped up and have improved since. They're fighters, you know, say, like, if you, even if it's Team Rhino, you have the guys like Siri and Reds are in the background now who've been in the UFC. You have Andy Ryan who's been coaching in the UFC and you have all that experience that, like, if guys sign for the PFL or Cage or the UFC or whatever it is, they have kind of that experience already around where that might be the case in the other side as well but like you won't remember it in most cases like the funny one is uh, we, we talked um, a few weeks ago uh, about Lanier Kavanagh and one of the most standout things for him is that he has Brad One, one Punch Pickett in his corner you know and that's a reason to kind of remember him to know him and all of that like look if there's John Kavanaugh's in your corner you're going like oh well that's John Kavanaugh he's an SPG guy he's in McGregor team it's just as simple it really is as simple as that and I think that's a huge advantage for Irish MMA fighters and I think the media scene as well like there are very few guys like like, like let's say you say right name me three guys covering MMA in Ireland you, you could easily do it you, you could name you know four or five six seven eight how many ever you want to do and maybe if you can get intricate like name me one person covering this the, the sport from england like i'm okay you're in england and all but i don't think you count your your irish you know i i, I don't like i can't uh, we have jake obviously who's with severe okay who's not with severe man. i i really i can't think i'm sure there's on him okay maybe simon head you know but he's in an mma junkie so you, you think of him maybe as american and sandu i don't think he's even in england anymore is he but he's working he's with not. yeah so I just think Ireland has that advantage and it's a massive advantage for the fighters so we don't get half enough fucking tanks but anyway we, 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 we will leave that to there's there's another speaker's corner for you there Harry right it though anyway let's talk about Will Flory because he's fighting Anthony Salamone and I looked at some of his fights and I know you did as well and uh, I, I'll open up the floor to you to talk about Salamone no do you know what I'll do it this guy has fought he's 7-0 and, oh, and he's really he fought one guy with a goodish record who's 5-1 he went to split decision with him um, and I watched that fight he basically wrestled him and he, that's what he does you know he wrestles guys he's a big strong blown up um, welterweight I would probably say fighting at middleweight uh, and most of the guys he's beaten have either never had a fight or have a terrible record so the opponents he's faced 0-0 0-0 6-7-1 0-1 0-0 5-1 3-0 4-0 5-0 and now he fights Will Flory, who's 10-3. and three. Now, that doesn't suggest wh- how good he is as a fighter. That just suggests what his 7-0 record looks like. If you look at Will Flory on the other side of it, 
and see the guy who who will flurry has fought. You know, he's fought Tarek Suleiman, who has 19 fights. You know, he's fought the likes of Ken Kabinen, who is 12 and 5. He's fought Norbert Navinia Jr., who's one of the best up-and-coming prospects in the world. Sean Taylor, the 8 and 1. Alan Emadovsky was 6 and 0 at the time. You know, he's fought some... Okay, he's had John Redmond at the very start of his career as well. But... As a starting off fight, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's any comparison there. And watching uh, Salamone, I think it's a really, really bad style matchup for the guy. I think if you want to be a bullying wrestler, Will Flory is probably not the guy. He's going to be bigger, taller than Mizzou. I was looking at their heights, and there isn't much of a difference in the heights. But I, I don't think... I haven't sat, uh, stood alongside Will Flory and seen him. He's a big, tall guy. This guy just doesn't seem that big. And I don't think he's going to be able to bully and take down Will Flory the way he takes down most guys. Now, if he does at the start and he takes him down early and often, you, you could, you know, it could be a good night for Salamone. But I think Will Flory will be able to stop that takedown if he can get a takedown of himself even better. But his last fight, he looked really good on the feet. And I think he'll be able to keep him kind of a, a, at the end of his jab. I haven't seen much from Salamone to suggest he's going to be a tough matchup for Will Flory. Uh, what, what did you think of him? So, being as political as possible, I, do, I don't rate the record, right? Something in something that's sort of a steadfast in Irish MMA is that you take the hardest fights as soon as you can get them and you prove yourself that win, lose or draw, that you take the hard fights, you take the hard road and you earn whatever you earn, whether it's, you know, this position in the PFL, whether it's a UFC title, whether it's a position on the European Bellator series, whether you just stay at Cage Legacy, whatever it is, whatever your skill set is, you earn that level. Um, it doesn't feel like that's been the case. The fight that, uh, that Anthony uh, was supposed to take before this was Samir Kadi. Samir Kadi may, may his name may ring a bell to you. He just fought Michael Chamu on Cage Warriors. Equally, a guy that looked pretty green uh, had a good performance on Cage Warriors. Michael Chamu had less of a good performance on that Cage Warriors card. But I think the big ex- the big difference here is going to be experience, right? Will Flory has fought some really, really, really good fighters, some top competition for his skill set, his some top competition for his own record. And I think physicality and experience, as you've touched on, are going to be really important here. Will sort of switched his game up in the last little while and has gone to more of a grappling heavy, very dominant positionally, very, very heavy pressure style. And I think that that's going to be really tough to deal with if you're Salamone. Yeah, I would think to agree. And it's, it's interesting, he has done that, but he like struck a lot of, of his last fight as well. And I'd be interested to see. And I think, you know, he had the hand injury and he had another injury, I think, in that fight as well. So, uh, great thing for Will Flory is I don't think anyone knows how he's actually going to fight in this fight. So it'll be very, very interesting. Probably uh, an advantage for him there as well. But great to see Will getting that shot. Great to see Nick Kelly getting that shot as well. And Ben Ellis for that. Uh, mind as well. Watch obviously all of his prides probably now uh, at this stage over in Cage Warriors when they're happening live. So, um, you know. PFL coming over It'll be very interesting To see what uh, What they do In the area And uh, how they do it So uh, Very good On the is, is it the same night uh, The The 13th Is Cage Warriors On the 13th is It is So on yeah. the same night uh, in in Wales as well, Jesus, this is this is not a short. Uh, am I just realizing something that people have been talking about for weeks? I, pro- I probably am here. Well, yeah, Cage Warriors and PFL gone uh, gone head to head in Wales as a Welshman. What you what you think of that? It's a bit interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, the the I think the problem is there's a lack of Welsh fighters 
on the PFL. Obviously, there's Ben Ellis, right? But there's not there's not a ton of big names. Whereas Aaron Aby, Josh Reed, Oban Elliott, you know, these sorts of people, Scott Pedersen, are on the Cage Warriors card. These are the big names, really, right? These are the big names. You know, obviously, you can't have a Jack Shaw, though. Jack Shaw will probably be at the Cage Warriors card because some of his teammates are on there. You will probably have uh, the Pikey Brett Johns at this card as well because some of his teammates are there as well. So, yeah, I mean, I understand the PFL are trying to come into the UK scene and and bring themselves in and show themselves. I think a lot of that is because of Brendan Lochnan. Um, but I, I'm not sure that it was the right idea to go up against a Cage Warriors card. The uh, the PFL card feels like an Irish card more than, <laughs> more than a Welsh card, if I'm being honest. And kudos on the pronunciation of Lochnan as well. Absolutely uh, almost nailed that. You know, it's not Lochnan, Lochnan, what people say. Anyway, um... This card is pretty good, though. You know, I must say, this card has kind of come out of nowhere, to be honest, for me. I was like, oh, Cage Warriors have a card, and it's a pretty good card. You know, Sam Creasy was obviously supposed to fight uh, only a couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't he? That fight was their weight miss or something. You, I, can ne- I can never keep on top of Sam Creasy because something always happens. But anyway, he's fighting uh, Steve Berich for the 125-pound title. Um... You know, this is the first fight in uh, in Cage Warriors for uh, for Burrich. He's fought in uh, EMC a couple of times as well. He's beaten like Luca Yvonne and and a few others as well. He's you know, if you go through his record, I, I haven't watched loads of him yet, but I'm sure we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that as as the week goes on. But his record looks pretty good, and it's it's an interesting fight here to headline this. But as you said, there's lots of very very good fights, and this Aaron Aby was that unbelievable story. He's fighting Michelangelo Lupoli. Uh, there's no such thing as a bad Josh Reed fight. I will always turn up for that. Sean McCormick as well, the Irish uh, fighter who's uh, who's one and one. He's fighting Owen Williams. He's fighting out of uh, FAI, the same gym as uh, as Paul Hughes and uh, Joe McCulgan and others as well. So uh, you know he's fought a couple of times on Cage Conflict. Uh, be interesting to see him here uh, on this as well. Chris Bungard, you know, who's been around for a long time out of Scotland. He's fighting uh, as well. Scott Pedersen, who's 1-3-1, one, one, but I think he's a better fighter than that. Jodrick Mann is 2-3. I think he's a better fighter than that. But the standout fight for me here is fucking Matthew Bonner against Oban Elliott. Does Oban Elliott know how to take a fight that isn't really, really, really fucking hard? Like, it's it's absolutely, it's crazy. He fought Mike Figlack. He's fought, you know, he fought Charles McManus, who I, I mentioned earlier. He fought Madis Flaminas. He came back with a win over Herkus Leonowskis uh, in his last fight. Uh, and now he's fighting Matthew Bonner, like the, the former champ who, uh, you know, is won his last two in a row after losing to Jatty Milan and was on a great run before that, you know, beat the unbeatable looking Natalius Frederick and James Webb and Matt Inman. My God, this is a. a, a I'll say it again. I I don't necessarily agree with this matchmaking, to be honest. But if Oban Elliott goes in there and goes, right, I'm going to fight the fucking toughest guys all the time, and that's what I want to do, then, you know, Ian Dean is going to say, well, you've obliged me, let's do it. And I, I think Matt Bonner as well, fair play to him for taking Oban Elliott. It's a tough fight for both guys, if we're being honest. But God almighty, Oban Elliott, he's not getting the easy road. He is not, he, like, he could be 6-2 and two here, or he could be... Uh, uh, what five and three, and whichever the record is, it's still a good record because of the fucking tough fights he has taken. But God Almighty, well, probably another speaker's corner in this, as we always did t- to say here about records. We have done actually one like this, but having said all that, forget all about that. It's a very good fight. How would you see the fight going? I think the question here is how does Matt Bonner look at welterweight after three years of not making it? His last two fights have been at a catch weight. Right. 
um, a catch weight of 177, but seven pounds is still seven pounds, right? And before these two uh, performances against Hugo Pereira and Joel Kouadja, he was losing. He was losing to the, the competition that he was facing, right? Madis Laminas and Mark Madsen, we know both of those fighters are a great caliber of fighter. He drew against Tim Barnett, and then the last welterweight fight before that was Graham Armstrong at Budo fighting. I think the question here is, is welterweight really where Matt Bonner should be? And is welterweight Matt Bonner the Matt Bonner that we're used to seeing in Cage Warriors? Because if it's not, then you're going to find that Oban Elliott's going to get to his hips and he's going to take him down and do the thing that we've seen Oban Elliott do so well. If he doesn't, and Matt Bonner has been able to transform his body over the last two fights, making that catch weight and reinventing himself at welterweight, and Matt Bonner's able to do what he was able to do against, uh, how have I forgotten his name, James Webb, sorry, and against Natias Frederick, and for the most part survive on the ground or get back up or stop the takedown, well, then we've got a very interesting fight. Oban Elliott is a very short man, a stocky man for welterweight, and Matt Bonner is the opposite. Big, long, tall, brothers of Muay Thai fighter, had loads and loads of experience there. We know that he can strike on the feet. We know he's got submissions from the bottom. I agree with you that I don't like this matchmaking at all. It feels like Oban Elliott it has the ability to be a star in Wales, whether that's a Cage Warriors level star or, or otherwise. I don't think he's, you know, the level that we're going to see him in the top 15 in the UFC welterweight division anytime soon. But I do feel like he has the ability to create and fill some of the gaps that sort of a, a, a Paddy Pimlet has left since going to Cage Warriors. He has that sort of personality. He has that swagger. He has that charisma. And you're chucking him in there against Matt Bonnet. Like I understand, as you said, Oban Elliott doesn't take easy fights. I hear that. But I think it's also on Ian Dean and, and Oban Elliott's team to be like, look, we can we can architect this a little bit better. We don't have to take easy fights, sure, but we don't have to take the hardest fucking guy out there also. You yeah. Know? Uh, I, yeah, I would tend to be of that mind as well. But like if he wins it, you know, if he wins it, the point still stands, I think. But it's, yeah. I, I And I, I would disagree with you as well in in the sense that I, I think Oban Elliott could rise to that level. Um I, I like I, I think he's silly he's like he's very young in his career. What was it? Nine, eight fights into his career? Seven fights into his career. For a guy if you look at someone else like six, seven fights into their career and they have like the ability that he has, like okay he's he's lost to, to Figlack and and, uh, and Flaminas. But God almighty, who wouldn't lose to Figlack and Flaminas? Um that doesn't that doesn't mean uh, like I, I think the ceiling is still high for him now. I, there can be a high ceiling for guys and they can never fucking reach it. They might say sitting down for the rest, for their whole life, you know? Uh, but I I know, I, no, I, I think he's, I think he can hit hard. I think he's good striking. I think he's good wrestling. You know, he needs to improve in all areas. May, like, he's the type of guy as well, I think, you, what you said about the size and finding a welterweight. I think he's the type of guy, if he could put a good run together, you know, I know he's working a job and everything like that, you know, give up the job, take it a hundred percent as your profession and maybe get back down to 155 let's say if there was a run in the ufc at 155 i think that would probably benefit him more but it's a massive fight for him and i'm looking forward to it. i'm looking forward to this card in general i think it should be a it should be pretty good um next weekend as well there is a bellator and a ufc uh, you know, obviously we'll touch on the UFC, uh, or I won't be on the, the preview show this week, but Harry and Spencer and uh, Eno will do a great uh, breakdown. Now we'll touch on it here in a, in a second, but there's the Bellator card as well. 
this is a bad Bellator card, if I'm being honest here, Bellator 284. Um, they have their usual kind of up-and-coming wrestlers uh, on the undercard. Keep an eye out uh, for uh, for Sullivan Cawley, who is 3-0. and Um the Jordan Newman was supposed to be on the card as well. I just uh, I I my my uh, Sherlock preview already done for this, and he's in that anyway. But he's not. It doesn't look like he's on this card anymore. He's out of there. Uh, also, Patrick Downey. I spoke to him last week, and he's a gas character altogether. Bit mad, you know. Got fucking thrown off of teams and uh, not selected for teams because he was smoking weed and getting into street fights and stuff. But an unbelievable wrestler. Like uh, I think he was like a Pan Am champion or something like that. He's a brilliant wrestler. So he's fighting Jeff Soder. Um, definitely keep an eye out for him Justin Keish and Deanna Bennett are rematching I've not, no idea really why they're rematching that fight maybe because Keish went in and beat Lee Manette McFarlane who's also on the car she's talking about uh, retirement but she's fighting uh, Bruno Ellen uh, Gokham Sakadam who people who've been in the Irish cards will probably know he's fighting Saeed Soma a guy who is a weird heavyweight in that he kind of just jabs on the outside and moves away from you whereas Sakadam is a big meaty man throwing big shots Austin Vanderfort is on this card against Aaron Jeffrey um the main event is Neiman Gracie and Gaishi Yamiuchi, and maybe I'll throw a lot over to Ian, that can t- or uh, Ian, Harry even, to uh, <laughs> to tell us about the grappling um, of both guys. I think that's going to be fucking 25 minutes of a boring, shitty kickboxing match. The fight I think should be main event, and a three-round main event, fuck these five-round main events, is Valentin Moldovsky against Steve Maury. What a fucking fight this is. Moldovsky... He's a heavyweight and he was the champion before Bader beat him the last time out, but he's been decisioning everyone. He's a very good technical fighter, not an amazing fighter. Steve Maury is a fucking seven foot giant, not quite seven foot, but he's like six eight or something. And he can hit hard, he can wrestle, he can do it all. But we'll see how good his defensive wrestling is here. We'll see how good he is against a real technical guy. 10 and 0, really, really good. Looking forward to that. Anything in that card and as well, tell us about Yamauchi and Gracie. I know both guys who are unbelievable on the ground, but usually when that happens, it turns into a kickboxing match, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even think there's any point talking about the ground exchanges because there probably no. won't be any. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, what we're going to see, obviously, Neiman Gracie carries the Gracie name, right? So we don't need to really say much more than that. He's obviously a fantastic jiu-jitsu practitioner. We've seen that in some of his fights. When he gets it to the ground, he's very, very dominant. Yamauchi is probably not going to try and, you know, he's going to do his best to not let him get there. If he can, he's going to be on top. He's going to do all of the things. But as always, when you have two ground specialists, it almost always, always, unless your name's Tim Elliott, it always turns into a kickboxing match. So I think it's going to be that. I think that one of the interesting wrinkles to that co-main event, though, you were saying, you know, six foot eight is an absolutely giant man, a giant man, Stefan Struve-esque levels. But he has a ton of Kimura finishes. You've mentioned, and you know, there's, there's, I think this is a fight to show it. If you can use Kimuras both as ways to stop takedowns, to ride takedowns, to reverse takedowns, this is the man to show you whether it's going to happen or not, right? If he has as good a Kimura as we've seen, what is it, six finishes by Kimura in his fights, five finishes by Kimura, then this is a man that understands how to use the Kimura, right? So if Valentin Moldeski gets to those six foot eight hips, I'd be very interested to see if we see any Kimura traps or any Kimura defenses. I'd be very interested. Yeah, I'm going to be at a wedding while this uh, fight is on as well. So feel free if this ends by Kimura, just send me loads of tweets. Go, Shani, Shani, you are right, you know, and then Harry as well, because he called about me. But uh, yeah, look, it's, it's not a great card. 
but there are some like if Steve Murray wins that against Moldovsky, like he's probably he's probably the champion at heavyweight, like because I think he'll beat Bader. So that's a that's a big fight. There'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, with Liam and McFarlane as well. You know, if Justin Keish wins against Bader, I think she'll probably be fighting uh, for the title at one twenty five, or maybe waiting for the winner of that match. And you know, at one seventy, Yamuchi or Gracie are not going to be fighting for a title anytime soon because there's two champions and Jason Jackson, the obvious number one contender. So that's basically been taken up there for a year. What can be said, though, in the UFC card this weekend, that the winner of uh, Marlon Chita Vera and Dominic Cruz will be right there. Uh, and uh, this, is a, this is a humongous fight, a brilliant fight. Like, uh, I'm someone who kind of wrote off Marlon Vera. I won't lie. I call him a journeyman, a little bit glibly, to be fair. You know, he had lost to Song Yidong and Jose Aldo in two of three fights. Got a kind of a weird win over Sean uh, O'Malley with the kind of the leg injury. But, and uh, he deserved, he caused the injury, so no problem. But uh, it was like three fights in a row where he lost two of them, and one was a, an injury. And then he's gone on a three fight win streak, beating David Grant, beating, beating the ghost of Frank Edgar, and very well, brilliantly, intelligently beating Rob Font in his last fight look to be honest this Dominic Cruz fight Dominic Cruz at 78 years of age you know uh, who hasn't fought since um, what in nine months now it's I don't think that's good for Dominic Cruz he's had too much time out too many injuries and all of that it's a massive opportunity for Chita Vera I'm not saying Chita Vera's going to win this I don't know what my pick is yet to be honest maybe I'll listen to you and I'll give my pick after what you take care but it's it's a massive fight for Chita because if Chita wins this he people like him you know he's a he's a big star he's a big star in his home country he could be getting a title shot or he could be right there or thereabouts if he wins this. What a fight for him. And this is a, it's a fun main event too because I think their, their styles match up because we saw it, like Cheat on his last fight just waiting and waiting and waiting for that one big shot is something you would think would be a terrible thing to do against Dominic Cruz but he did it so well in his last fight and he seems to be really good at it that you'd never know as well against today's Cruz. So I'm looking forward to seeing if he even fights like that but massive opportunity, isn't it? It really is. And this is, you know, Spencer's sort of drilled into me and you've drilled into me that we must question fighters. We must question fights. And to me, this is a fight that I have a bag of questions about. Vera's style against Rob Font is one that we haven't seen him use to such effectiveness before. Rob Font, however, is a guy that we know that he's going to come very conventionally. And I use that not disrespectfully at all, but he's very conventionally in an MMA stance with MMA footwork and MMA boxing. So for somebody like Chito Vera, you can find a ton of guys to bring in and emulate that style. To emulate Dominic Cruz is Rare more point. difficult. Yeah. Not impossible, but difficult to do. So to find the timing of Dominic Cruz especially if Dom Cruz comes in and doesn't have any of the plantar fasciitis problems that he's been having, if he's healthy, if he's fit for this, and if he's up for this, finding the timing of Dom Cruz is going to be difficult. We know that Vera has been taken down before at ease. We saw it in the Frankie Edgar fight. If Dom Cruz is able to get on top and is able to get away from the offensive guard, offensive elbows of Vera, maybe pass guard, maybe hold him, maybe crunch him up against the fence, whatever it is. This could be a rudimentary fight for Dom Cruz. Use the footwork, land the jabs, get to the hips, take him down, nullify some of the striking and the power. Fine. If you can drag him to rounds two and three and tire him out a little bit, well, that power is obviously going to sap away slightly. 
If you're Tito Vera, though, we don't know. Like, this is the big question. What's that? What's that Rob Font fight done for Chito Vera's confidence? Is he going to come in here and is he going to have found somebody that will emulate the style of Dom Cruz? Is Dom Cruz just too old now? We saw him have a war against Casey Kenny, a war. I scored that fight for Casey Kenny. I thought the first two rounds were enough for him. And then obviously Dom Cruz came on and had a, had a really good third. The Pedro Munoz fight, good performance, but that's Pedro Munoz, who's also 78 million years old. Like this to me is a, is a great, great bit of matchmaking for many, many reasons. I don't think this propels Dom back to a title shot if he wins. However, I do think if he loses, this is Marlon Vera taking the shine of Dom Cruz. If Dom Cruz wins, though, I think this shows Marlon Vera, at least in the UFC's eyes, this is your ceiling right now. Great fight. I, I think the word ceiling is good because I don't think Marlon Vera necessarily knew or believed in himself as a top fighter. I, I didn't either, you know, <laughs> to be fair. But I, I've, I've said it before, we talked about that Frank Edgar fight, even though it was Frank Edgar now, I think that was a big fight for him. If he could do the same for Dominic Cruz, against Dominic Cruz even, I think uh, I think that'd be massive. So it's a very, very interesting fight. And obviously yourself uh, and Ian and Spencer will break that down in the preview show. Thursday, uh, 7 o'clock is it 7 o'clock 8 o'clock uh, check out our YouTube anyway. 8 o'clock 8 o'clock on Thursday check out our YouTube there Um, I wouldn't say it's a brilliant card other than that the one that I would say stands out and there's a couple of fights actually I'll uh, turn to but uh, uh, Amazat uh, Murkazanov um, is fighting Devin Clark and if you look at the guys he's beaten you know Taffin and Chukwe we had a great performance of that flying knee uh, in his last fight but he's also beaten the aforementioned Matthias Scheffel um, who's in the PFL semi-finals uh, who beat Bruno Capeloza you know he knocked him out in the first round in the Dana White Contender Series he's beaten Andre Muniz uh, at light heavyweight when they were both fighting there um, back in 2016 I know it's a while back as well but he's definitely a name to keep an eye on and, you know Devin Clark I watched a good bit of his fights there not too long ago and you know he's when he's good he's very good but when he's bad he's awful as the, as the old Irish saying goes but uh, that's an interesting fight there for me I, I like to see Nina Nunes back her against Cynthia Calvillo I think that's a very very good fight Look, Onama against Landwehr, I think that's going to be a fucking a barn burner as long as Landwehr doesn't maybe take him down over and over and over. Uh, Lupi Godinez, that's a big fight for her against Angela Hill. You know, Angela Hill, 13 and 12, she's probably on the verge of the end of her career now at this stage. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, Ori Osborne against Tyson Am as well. Fight at night for me, I think that could be. So, what stands out for you on that card, uh, Harry? I know you will be breaking it down more, but uh, anything that the, the view, the listeners here should be definitely watching out for next week. I really like Yusuf Salal. He's always in an interesting fight. This is, to me, again, a question of whether that man can figure out that he's actually really long. And, and has a ton of range advantage on a lot of guys. And if he can stop himself getting pushed up against the fence, that'll be interesting. I don't mind a Gabriel Benitez fight. Um, and I think that whilst it may not have a ton of jeopardy for sort of title contention or whatever, Nina Nunes and Cynthia, Cynthia Calvillo is a big fight for both women. Yeah, I think fine. if Cynthia Calvillo loses this fight, she probably gets cut from the UFC. I think if Nina Nunes loses this fight, We've also got big problems with with the next contract coming up. So big, big fights. It's not a great card in terms of jeopardy and title picture and whatever, whatever. But I think there are some fights on this card that that mean, I know this sounds really silly because every fight means a lot to every fighter, but like that mean a lot to the future of these fighters. So you sound more and more like Spencer every day now. You are. <laughs> I love well, that's not a bad thing, though. That's not a bad thing, you know. Fair play. Yeah, I just think... Uh, <laughs> 
look, it could be a stinker, right? Because there are some fights on here that we don't really care about and that don't have a lot of name value. But in the same vein, you've said this before, right? Something about the Cage Warriors cards that we like to watch is you watch those Cage Warriors cards and then in 10 years when these fighters are fighting for the UFC, you're like, oh shit, I remember that guy. He was, I was watching him in Cage Warriors fucking 10 years ago. So, you know, yeah, this shouldn't be where the UFC is, but here we are. Indeed. Uh, Last thing before we go, it was announced that uh, Israel Adesanya is going to be fighting Alex Pereira after his big win over Sean Strickland, who put on a fantastically coached, brilliant performance against... I'm joking, he didn't. Uh, against Alex Pereira. Sorry, I'll get, I'll get, uh, I'll get killed over that one. Uh, but, um, yeah, I... I saw a lot of people and I saw uh, Shaheen Al-Shahi saying, oh, this was like the, uh, this is the fight I'm looking forward to most for the second part of the year or whatever. And I'm thinking, like, did you watch Israel Adesanya's last fight? Like, I can't trust Adesanya anymore. And I know Dana White, which, you know, Ariel has given out about Dana White's uh, ability to promote. And I would tend to 100% agree with what Ariel said on that. But he has promoted this pretty well. Like, he came out straight away after the last Adesanya stinker. And he's like, I can't guarantee you the next fight won't be like that. I guarantee you the next fight, which is great promotion. Like, like people are buying into it. Um, I, I think it could actually be worse from Adesanya. Like, he's also promising it's going to be a fucking unbelievable, which, if past this prologue, will suggest it's going to be war- like this is going to be an all out like jab for- he's going to be deathly afraid of his power he is just going to be like jabbing and fainting from the outside and praying to win a decision even more than he normally does like I'm I'm slightly done with Adesanya to be honest I've never been the biggest fan of Adesanya anyway I think he's massively overrated but what the overrated part with the boring shitty fights as well I think he'll win I think he'll probably win all five rounds but I think it's going I I I hope I'm wrong. By God, there's no one hopes they're wrong more than me because I'll be the one sitting there at fucking half six in the morning watching it. I just, I, I'm like seventy percent sure this will be a stinker. What, what do you think? May I hope? Tell me I'm wrong, please. What I will say is, for the longest time, Israel Adesanya has been screaming about he wants to get a submission win in the UFC. If there is a guy to submit in the UFC of all your opponents, it's a great shout. It's Alex Pereira. Yeah. Right. Now, I think there is something, if Israel comes out here, does a bit of the jabbing, right? Does a bit of the, you know, basically does the Jan Blachowicz, right? Takes the Jan Blachowicz blueprint and puts it on himself and says, okay, maybe not as long as the fourth round, right? Whatever. But maybe he plays around for a round, maybe two rounds, and then immediately double legs him, takes his back, finishes him. I think everyone goes absolutely wild. Why? Because we see a new wrinkle. The UFC have built this this guy up to be this incredible power puncher, this this phenomenal, formidable foe for Israel Adesanya. And Adesanya just hits the first submission of his career and finishes him in you know a title fight and whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, yeah. is that going to be the game plan? Yeah, probably not. But, but like, if you think about be- it though, like Adesanya, like everything I said there negatively about Adesanya is probably positive in terms of his ability to game plan to intelligently win fights you know like let's say you have the exact opposite of Sean Strickland in the last fight an intelligent game plan to win the fight that yeah. sounds like something Adesanya would go for you know so yeah I, I'm right and yeah, you know right. not as though there, are, there isn't grappling knowledge in city kickboxing there definitely is you don't innovate some of the cage wrestling defensive stuff that we've seen Izzy hit without 
good knowledge of grappling in that gym. So that's certainly not the problem. And I think I, I personally don't agree with the overrated thing of Israel. I think what he does is unbelievably technical and unbelievably, unbelievably skillful. I don't, I, I agree that it's not the most exciting style. I personally really like it, but that's because I'm a scumbag. That's fine. Um, I feel though that what you do have is a supremely intelligent fighter, a supremely risk averse fighter, a fighter that knows his limits and knows what he needs to do to win fights. And clearly, clearly the way to win this fight is to take your man down and either control him on the ground or finish him. And it yeah. feels as though that's what Sean Strickland didn't do. That's what the guys Bruno Silva didn't do. It feels like if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Israel Adesanya. A hundred percent. And I just a final point is I'll, I I don't necessarily say he's overrated because he's boring. I think he's overrated because he's like a little bit overrated. I, I like if you look at his opponents and the strength of guys he has faced, it's like lower than almost any champion you could think of. Uh, who's had as many as many like title fights and title defenses as him? Now may, maybe there's you know maybe a Ronda Rousey or someone there, but in an established division that's been there for that many years, it's like he's fighting lads that aren't that good. And like Paulo Costa is the only like Paulo Costa is rubbish. Like a guy of Paulo Costa's ability wouldn't get in with an ass's roar of a fucking title shot in a proper division, um, and. It feels like Adesanya is making hard work of guys he shouldn't be making hard work of. And when he fought one guy who was a slightly bad matchup for him in Blahovic, he he beat him. You know, and there's really, and I say it again, um, there's no real unbelievable wrestlers at right at the top of the middleweight division and there hasn't been for the last few years. Like, okay, Andre Muniz is coming, but is he the guy? I don't know, maybe. But like, let's say a Colby Covington-esque wrestler at 185 that if he beat and I'm I hate saying oh he didn't get the wrestler test and all of that it's just he's this fighter doesn't exist in that division and I feel like he hasn't really uh and there is there isn't really any great fight like um Robert Whitaker is a very 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 good fighter is he a great fighter you know probably probably not and then he's the best of the rest it just it's not a great division so that's why I kind of say it I think he is you know he, he's the the king whose crown could be stolen, you know, by someone else, you know. But anyway, we leave it at that. Harry, go on. Have you another point to make? Shamayev, yeah. I like I one of my predictions for the year, and maybe it won't happen now because he'll run out of time because he's fighting Nathan Diaz, and uh, Leon Edwards is fighting um, against Usman. But like one of my predictions for the year was Shamayev wins the title against Usman and immediately calls out Adesanya. There, there is. No doubt in my mind that Shemayev would beat Adesanya. Like, no, none at all. I don't think there could be a surer thing in the world of Shemayev beating Adesanya. What do, you, what do you think of that fight? Do you think Adesanya has a chance against him? I certainly think he has a chance against him. I just think what we would see, it would it would be the biggest test of Adesanya's footworking ability because Hamzat Shemayev doesn't care about footwork. He just cares about getting in your face and smashing you. He cares about doubling you across the cage. He, he cares about all of these things. I I would have Hamza Shemaev as a heavy favourite, but I would certainly give Adesanya ways to win. Yeah. I give him a good 10% chance, maybe. I think Shemaev smishes him. He absolutely smishes him. But anyway, hopefully we'll see that. That's actually a great fight. Like, I would love to see that fight because it is that massive test for Adesanya, but like, 
I feel like Usman and Shamayev is definitely going to happen, and that is that is the best of the best fighting the best of the best. You know what's my what's my line, Harry? The best fighting the best when they are the best. Well, that's fucking that. That is that, and uh, I can't wait for it to happen. Now fucking Leon Edwards will go in and beat Usman or something like that. I mean, look, if he does, then that's the best of the best fighting the best. You know, so we will uh, we'll meet that road when we when we come to it. All right. We will leave it there. This is one of the longest podcasts we've had in a, in a good while. But you know, why not? Harry, you've done a great job over the last two weeks. I really appreciate your legend. We'll have you back on definitely again. Follow him at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Listen to One Man Boot. Catch out all of his stuff over on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Severe May podcast. Uh, and the preview show every Thursday night. Leading off that with Ian and Spencer and myself the odd time as well. The best technical analysis you will analysis even you'll get anywhere on God's green art from the man himself, Harry Paul. Harry, thank you very much. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we'll see you all next time with the State of the UFC. Next Sunday, State of the UFC, myself and Spencer Kite are back. See you then. <laughs>